Welcome to the Rural Births podcast. This podcast was created to record and share stories from the many rural women who have birthed, to allow them to voice their experience and learn from them. I want rural women who are pregnant, planning to get pregnant, or entering their postpartum period to feel supported and know that, although care may be via distance, there are options. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced on you and country. We acknowledge the innate birthing wisdoms and traditions held by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the traditional custodians of this land. We remember the first women of this nation, the custodians of land and birth, who birthed on country in culture and tradition. Here, as we share in stories, stories of birth, preconception, pregnancy and postpartum experiences from remote, rural and outer regional communities. May we remember and stand for the cultural significance of birth, women's business and birthing on country. May we nurture and support women through this rite of passage as we hear of possibilities ignited and limitations created. May we share in the power of storytelling and memory as we listen and learn from these birth stories. And may we always remember the ancestral wisdoms belonging to the country these birth stories occur on today. property outside of Catherine in the Northern Territory. She has been on a long preconception journey navigating the world of fertility treatments and IVF specialists for many years. She is now in the third trimester of her pregnancy, having relocated to birth and is expecting to give birth any day or week now. In this interview, she shares her heartaches and the mental load she's carried on this journey. She goes into detail about treatments and the different tests she's had. Rainey shares how she's transitioned practitioners moving from Darwin to the Gold Coast to Melbourne, traveling for her care and to have her and her partner's fertility care needs met. She generously opens up about the array of different avenues she's been down on this journey towards conception and reminds us that transitioning care providers can open up new pathways. Rainey really appreciated the services and expertise of her IVF specialist on the Gold Coast as they always explored new alternatives and looked into the many reasons for conception struggles. She offers in this interview advice for both people moving through their own fertility journey and the support people who walk alongside them. Thank you so much to Rainey. 
She is an IVF warrior. We're so grateful that she has taken the time to share her journey towards conception. Rainy Holcomb and I'm from Catherine in the Northern Territory um, and really in our family is just myself and my husband um, Tristan everyone calls him Potter as in Harry Potter so up here um, in the Territory everyone goes off nicknames so <laughs> and, and I'm pretty fortunate my parents um, Janelle and Louie they live in Catherine as well so I guess they sort of make up a bit of our family but yeah just you know, immediate family it's just my husband and myself and uh, a whole heap of animals. <laughs> yeah, and did your parents um, follow you up to Catherine or are you originally from Catherine? No, so I was actually born in Catherine and uh, yeah, I lived up here my whole life. And um, yeah, I don't know, I don't really want to go anywhere else. I really love it up here. The lifestyle is beautiful, the, you know, people, the countryside, the scenery, everything I love about it. So um, well, I won't be going anywhere anytime too soon. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> except you're about to go on a fun journey of relocating for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yes, but that's still um, still sort of like our closest major town and I spent a fair bit of um, time there. So, yeah, it's pretty familiar to me, which is good. Yeah. So um, on Instagram, you've um, shared really openly about your journey with fertility and... Um, you definitively deserve to be called an IVF warrior. <laughs> like, um, I love that phrase. And I was wondering if you would share a bit about your journey to conception. Um, you've gone through time and place and different treatments. And yeah, what has that been like as a rural woman moving through everything in IVF? Yeah, so... I've actually, I've actually had to write this one down because otherwise I feel like I miss a fair, fair bit of the story. Um, it has, it has been a very long journey for us, I suppose. And um, it started in 2016. Um, we got married, and um, in July, and we started trying for a baby straight away. Um, Twelve months later, we still weren't successful, and we just sort of had a feeling that something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. um you know we were young fit healthy so no reason that we shouldn't have been falling pregnant um we so i guess we went to our local gp who then referred us to uh an ivf clinic in darwin and at the time um we were running our contract mustering business that's what um, my husband and i do for work we have our own uh, contract mustering business so we travel all across the territory um so we were based on a property at the time on the edge of the Barclay. So it's sort of a four hour drive to our local GP and then a seven hour drive um, to Darwin to see the specialist. So um, we would go, we went up to Darwin, had our you know first um, initial consultations and um, kind of, I guess, initially we were quite excited about it all because um, I think at that point you think, oh yeah, IVF's always successful. You know, there's um, no doubt that it'll work, um, which I guess couldn't really be further from the truth. Um, so we um, arranged to do an egg collection in November of 
Um, my mum and I, we booked an apartment up in Darwin and we stayed up there for three weeks while I underwent a stimulant cycle, um, which prepares your body for egg collection. So it involves lots of self injections and medications and um, scans, appointments and everything. So we just stayed up there for three weeks and um, on the day of the surgery, um, Potter, my husband came up um, he has to also give his sample so they can make your embryos yeah. and and then he's there also for the surgery. So we got um, six viable embryos from that particular egg pickup. Um, and I guess we thought that was good because we'd never done it before. But in hindsight now, knowing what other women go through, six is probably a fantastic number as well. Some people mm. you know, don't end up with any. So, so we were pretty happy with that. Um, after the surgery, um, normally have a, a fresh transfer straight away, but my body wasn't really cooperating. So we had to wait um, a full month before I was able to go ahead with a frozen transfer. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I traveled back up to Darwin for that and uh, had the frozen transfer. It, it didn't work. Um, so we had another couple of frozen transfers and a little bit more testing as to why they weren't working. Um, but our specialist just told us, you know, at, that there's no more tests to run. Um, and just to keep transferring embryos, there should be no reason that our embryos weren't implanting. Um, but, you know, after sort of having three or four embryos um, transferred and not having any success, we weren't really happy with just spending our money on on you know, keep going with the transfers. We wanted to do more investigation. There must have been some reason, you know, that they weren't working. We weren't prepared to just keep wasting money on embryos that weren't going to implants. Um, and and it, it is expensive. So each embryo transfer is, you know, three and a half thousand dollars approximately. So yeah. um, that wasn't something we're prepared to, prepared to, you know, just pay without getting, you know, results, I suppose. Mm. So, um, we decided then that we'd look at using a different IVF specialist, um, but there's no other options in the Northern Territory. So we began to look interstate. And um, initially we began looking for someone in Brisbane because it's just a direct flight from Darwin and we've got friends and family in that area. And um, talking to a friend one day, um, she mentioned a specialist on the Gold Coast. So I did some further research into this specialist um, and decided that you know he sounded really good and and he was only an extra hour from Brisbane so um, we thought that um, we just like we booked a Skype appointment with him initially and and that was good you know instantly after we had our Skype appointment with him we felt much more positive and mm. thought that his you know plan for us um, seemed to have a bit more hope so we were excited again <laughs> And um, and he also, you know, wanted to do a lot more different tests and things, which Darwin had had not offered us. So we, yeah, we yeah. were relieved with that. Um, so I guess one of those first tests um, was to perform a laparoscopy and to search for endometriosis. Um, my first clinic told me that I didn't have it because I didn't possess any of the symptoms of endometriosis. So in July 2018, I flew down to the Gold Coast and my mother-in-law met me there and, and took me in for my surgery. And um, they did find mild endometriosis and they were able to remove it. So um, that was the first step. So it was sort of a relief to find something, you know, wrong. 
Um, then in October, um, my mum and I flew down to the Gold Coast and we stayed down there with my nan um, for three weeks and prepared to go ahead with another stim cycle. Nice. So uh, again, Potter flew down um, for his bit and to be there um, during the surgery. And this time we sent our embryos, embryos away for PGS testing, which is testing that looks for um, any um, anything that's sort of wrong that could cause the embryo not to implant or it might cause it to miscarriage further down the track. So we wanted to sort of eliminate that. Yeah. Um, so we got really good embryo results. Um, I can't even remember the number we ended up with, but I do remember um, the embryologist and the scientist telling us that the fertilisation, um, the growth, the survival and the testing rate um, really blew him away. And our specialist was really excited with that as well. So that was good. We got really great numbers. Um, but because you send the embryos away, um, you can't do a fresh transfer straight away. They take about a month or so to have the testing done. Mm -hmm. So um, we decided again to come back um, later on and have our first frozen transfer with the PGS tested embryos. Um, so yeah, I came back in November for that frozen transfer and the embryo failed. Um, so from there, we underwent a couple more transfers each time, trying something different, a different protocol of medications or acupuncture and just different things that our specialist um, recommended. Um, nothing was working, I guess. You know, we were still having repeated failures. Um, so then by the time, sort of like our mustering season up here had started in 2019, um, I was losing a bit of hope. And I guess we were both struggling with it on an emotional, mental and financial level. Um, our work was really busy. So I can't, we just kind of made a decision to take a step back from IVF for a bit, focus on work, um, because that's something that I really love doing. I love our job. I'm very passionate about it. Um, and so I guess that was my way of just sort of refocusing on us for a little while. And yeah, just, just pushing IVF to the back of the mind for a, a bit while we sort of, I guess, wrapped our head around what what other scenarios there might be or possibilities there are and things like that. Um, so during break from transfers and all serious business of IVF, we um, underwent some further testing. So we had some blood tests done um, and they were to test us for what's called the DQ alpha gene. Um, it's a gene that if both of you share it, um, it means that basically my body doesn't recognise the embryo as a pregnancy as it's too similar to my own genetic makeup and the body considers it as a cancer or something foreign and your natural killer cells destroy it. Um, so this testing was actually quite a lengthy process for us because um, the bloods had to be sent away to Melbourne and the first lot of tests we had taken um, got lost somewhere in the pathology system. Um, and it takes a month for each lot of test results to come back to you. So the first lot got lost. So we had to wait another month to find that out. Then we did the testing again and they actually test, they uh, tested us for celiac disease and not the DQMLF gene. So that was another month wasted as well. Somehow, I don't know, they wrote that wrong on the form. Um, so the third lot, 
uh, we finally got right. Um, so by then, by the time we got those results, it was pretty much halfway through sort of 2019 at that point. Um, and the results indicated that Potter and I were a complete match for the DQ alpha gene. And um, you can have partial matches or complete matches. Um, those who are 100% match only have a 20% chance of falling pregnant, falling pregnant um, with treatment and on a pretty serious immune protocol. So our chance, I guess, was a bit slimmer than 20% because also I had endometriosis that is a factor of infertility as well. So um, that was a pretty big blow. Um, yeah, we, I guess that was some of our darkest days. It was pretty hard to sort of soak that in and, um, yeah, determine what our next steps were. There is a treatment available, um, but there's not a lot known about it. Um, really globally about the DQ alpha gene. I know in America they don't even do treatment. It's not allowed over there. So Australia, it's starting to become a little bit more common. So um, if you do research on it, it's hard to find, you know, anything um, mm. out there about it. But um, so we looked, I guess we considered the treatment for that and things. Um, but I, um, I also then that year had to have sur surgery for a hernia. Um, so I had to wait for my body to recover from that. Um, yeah. So once, once I'd had that, um, waited for the body to recover and then trying to fit it into our mastering program, we um, flew to Melbourne to another fertility specialist there, but um, he's one of two specialists in Australia who offers treatment for the DQ alpha gene. Um, so the treatment's called LIMIT, which stands for Lymphocyte Immunization Therapy. And the aim of the treatment is to suppress your immune system so it stops attacking your embryos. And the method to achieving this is by taking blood from Potter um, and then they adjust the blood cells in it, create a serum and inject it into my arm. Um, then the same process is repeated exactly four weeks later and it suppresses your immune system. Um, but the results will last for six months. So we did a second trip um, to Melbourne about four weeks after the first one and had had that so that was November December um, last year and um, not long after our second treatment process um, I then flew to the Gold Coast to have um, another embryo transfer and was put on a pretty strict immune protocol as well um, but that failed um, so then I guess because we had our hopes up a fair bit by then because, you know, it was yeah. a treatment. It's a, it was our best chance sort of thing. So, yeah, that was another sort of blow. Um, we only had two embryos left by that stage in storage. Um, so we decided then that I would have another laparoscopy just to clean up any other endometriosis that might have grown back um, over sort of the past year and a half since my first one. Yep. Um, so during that surgery, I also had a hysteroscopy and a lipidial flush. So that basically just cleaned up all my endometriosis and tidied up your uterus, creating like the best environment possible for a transfer. Um, 
so after I recovered from that surgery, um, we decided to have one last shot again with our last two embryos. So we decided we'd do a double transfer. So we transferred two embryos. Um, and we were again on another uh, strict immune protocol as well, but it just um, our specialists sort of tweaked a few of the drugs around and tried some different ones. And uh, at the end, so yeah, that transfer was sorry at the end of February. And um, then you have your treated two week wait where you wait to see if you get a positive result. And um, we've got our fi finally got our first ever positive result. So that was. I don't know, it was exciting but terrifying at the same time. Um, and I think we were really excited. I mean, we were really excited anyway, but um, my HCG levels were so high. So it ended up that we were actually pregnant with twins um, because we'd had the double embryo transfer. But unfortunately, at five weeks, I miscarried one. Um, and that's, yeah, one of the most frightening experiences I think you could ever go through. Um, you know, they think IVF is hard, but then I, I don't know, I think suffering a miscarriage is, is much harder. Um, so, uh, yeah, I know, I guess being a real whim, a woman and going through the process, it adds, adds the challenges, like distance being the main one, because, you know, for each embryo transfer, you've got to have repeated blood tests and ultrasounds to track your cycles. Mm. Um, so for us in particular, it could be anywhere from a two hour to a seven hour drive. Um, and sometimes you need your bloods done every second day to track your cycle. Um, so lots of travel involved. Um, you know, the cost of IVF is massive anyway. So then, you know, with fuel, flights, accommodation, meals, time away from work. Um, yeah, I guess all the dollars start stacking up. So I think, when you're living remotely or rurally, uh, it's definitely more financially harsh than say if you had the conveniences of living closer to a specialist or or in a major town where you have access to um, pathology labs and mm. um, yes, all of that. So yeah, that's sort of our story through um, that process. <laughs> yeah, it's a big story and like you demonstrated such incredible resilience as well like I don't know how you did it like just kept coming back um and I, I think it's incredible and definitely speaks to doing it like that you did go find other people as well like you're like oh it's not we're not feeling it in Darwin or, or like this is the avenue that we're being offered and then to go find another practitioner further away out of state um, and to go to the Gold Coast. And it really did open up all these other pathways, like what you were listing off and sharing was that you tried this and then they tweaked this and then you tried this, that they, and that they looked for endometriosis without signs of endometriosis. They were really covering your bases and was it them who connected you with Melbourne and the specialist? Yes. Yeah, so absolutely. Our specialist on the Gold Coast, um, every time we had a failure, he did something different before we had another transfer. We never, no two transfers were the same. Um, he wanted to try something different every time. Mm. Um, 
And yes, so then he worked in conjunction with then the specialist in Melbourne who does a treatment for the DQ alpha gene. And, and I guess to know, to be able to test for that when it's, like I said, it's not well known. So yeah, um, that, you know, he's obviously up to date with his um, infertility practices and all the different um, things that are developing. So yeah, we were very happy with the specialist on the Gold Coast and I think it was certainly you know, the best decision we ever made. Because it is it is quite daunting um, picking a, a specialist. You know, especially from Darwin, there's only one clinic you can go to, so that makes the decision easy. But when you want to branch into state, um, yeah, there's so many out there. And, and yeah, I guess you don't really know where to start looking. And, and um, yeah, just... And how did you prefer, kind of navigate that? Like, when you jump on Google and you type in, you know... <laughs> I guess anywhere you can fly to um, yeah. and go, well, who's there? Or was it referrals or um, word of mouth? Like how did you tap into the world of who to move to next? Um, well, that's, yeah, it's a very good question because it's quite daunting. I think I we looked mainly at Brisbane initially because for us it's just, um, you know, probably the shortest flight. It's four hours from Darwin. Um, and <coughs> sorry, we knew that, you know, being such a big city that there would be, you know, lots of good specialists there. Um, but knowing which ones were the best ones, um, you wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. Um, but I am, I am on a uh, support group on Facebook and that it's a great avenue, I suppose, to ask questions on there on who people recommend or you could say, you know, has anyone had experiences with this doctor and, and were they positive or negative and, and could you share those experiences? So getting advice from that support group was very helpful. Um, and for us, like I said, we were quite lucky in that a friend who lives up here said that her auntie had used the specialist that we had and had success. Um, and so I just sort of, yeah, searched his name and looked into him a bit further and then on the support group asked you know how, what does people think um about this clinic and this doctor in particular and had great feedback about him so um we were like well we'll give him a go and you know if, if yeah again we have a bad experience or we'll change again but um yeah we're, we've been pretty happy with him since day one yeah. Mm, it seems like you were kind of just leaning into it going it'll be all right but was it hard to kind of go okay so now I've got to travel this far and pick up myself like was it easy to take in your stride or um did you find that need to tr move think, your life difficult um well I think yeah just necessity you have to <laughs> just yeah. sort of take it in your stride um you know you can't you can't really think about the distances that you need to travel. It's just something that comes with our lifestyle and our job. You know, we travel hundreds of thousands of kilometres in a day for work. Um, so I think, yeah, just getting on a plane for four hours you seem like an easy task, I guess. But also, yeah, I guess desperation kicks in and you're like, well, if that's what we've got to do, then that's what we've got to do. Um, I guess the most unconvenient part about it is the expense of paying for flights um like I quite like flying so yeah I don't know it was it was worth it I think um 
you know, to be able to have access to the best treatment, I guess we thought it was worth, you know, if we have to get on a plane, we have to fly and, um, you know, then we hire a car at the other end and you got to get accommodation and stuff. But yeah, I think we just thought, well, if it all works out, then it's, it's working, you know, it's definitely worth it. But I think our hardest challenge was trying to time like you cycle in with the mastering program <laughs> like as as bad as that sounds um you know the work is what pays for the IVF so you kind of have to make them work together yeah um, and you're living and you're working on the land like <laughs> you time yeah. by the land in many ways exactly and you know as you know like working with animals you kind of can't just leave them to fend for themselves you know so yeah um, I I would often have to leave during the middle of a muster and knowing that, you know, it was going to be an inconvenience to the rest of our crew because they would be shorthanded. Um, you know, and my husband would stay behind to keep going with the work and run the crew and do the jobs. Um, and I guess that, I don't know, I did, I felt like I was letting our crew down because then they would have to pick up the slack for me while I was away. Um, but I think you just have to look at the bigger picture to remind yourself that, you know, it'll all be worthwhile and they'll be fine. And um, yeah. And then once you have a transfer, then you kind of got to take it easy for those two weeks um, yeah. until you get your results. So pretty much I was put on light duties when I came home. Um, I wasn't allowed to get extremely hot, which up here is pretty difficult. <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and I think, trying to train your mind not to push your body too much is tricky as well because you're so used to just automatically you know doing you know so much physical work that you've kind of got to check yourself back a bit and say no maybe you should stay inside and cook for the crew today instead of going around and running around the backyards with the cattle and stuff um so yeah the travel was difficult but like I said we're pretty used to it up here um we're used to long long drives big distances so we didn't really think that much of it it was just part of the process and we knew um to get you know to get a baby that's what we had to do <laughs> yeah and when you were doing um treatments like you said how you had to inject yourself and things did that kind of take a physical toll and make working on the land difficult at times like at times you had to take it easy but at other times when you were asking your body to do different things or having to take different things to move your body into different places was it then hard to kind of do the work as well um i think the work is actually probably a good distraction from it in mm -hmm. honesty um i remember our first dim cycle in darwin and, and we were working on this um property on the edge of the barclay and it's two million acres so it's quite a large property and um, I was quite excited actually because we got our box of all the injections and the drugs and I was like you know oh, this is it yeah IVF and it'll work and and at that point I guess you're so excited that you're not so worried about um worried about injecting yourself you know it's a very daunting thing having to give yourself a needle and and most of the injections are in your stomach mm -hmm. um so I guess that's something you know there's no nurse there to do it for you it's um mentally that's sort of something that you just have to come to terms with that you can do yourself or get your partner to but in my case my husband's terrible with needles so that wasn't an option at all i um just sort of had to suck it up and do it but 
Um, I'm very fortunate in that I I didn't have very many side effects from the stimulants either. Um, I, my body's been, it reacts quite well. And, um, you know, some people will have pain or bloating and nausea and all of that. But um, I've been very fortunate in that I didn't really have any reactions to anything like that. So I guess that made it a bit easier for me. Um, there was, you know, didn't really change my lifestyle too much. Um, I think the timing, there are certain injections that you have to do at a certain time um, mm-hmm. of the day. <clears throat> they were probably the most challenging. Um, they were normally at night time. So I guess that was a saving grace for us. But, you know, um, I remember we were in Darwin with some friends actually <clears throat> for a, a weekend off um, to watch the footy um, grand finals. It was a World Cup. And, um, it was, I had to take an injection at like nine o'clock on the dot or 9.30 or something. And I said to my husband, okay, we've got to go back to the hotel because I've got to take my injection now. And um, he's like, oh yeah, well, you'll be right. You can just walk back on your own. And I'm like, I'm not walking the streets in dark just so I can go back and have an injection. I'm like, you're on this road as well. So you have to come home with me. And he was so cross that I made him leave the football game so that we could go back to the room and take the needle and then walk back to the football match again and by then you know it was over and I wasn't very popular but you know they're they're the sort of things you have to do I guess um so those ones are a bit a bit trickier I guess but fortunately they're at night time so it's not like you know you're in the middle of um drafting cattle and you're like oh you know it's two o'clock in the afternoon I just have to leave um Mm. but remembering remembering to take your certain medications um you have like a little schedule so that you can check them off each day or each night and um, ordering them. Um, because if you're at bush and then you've run out, you have to get them transported to you somehow, but they've got to stay chilled. Um, so often you'd get them put on bus freight and they'd package them up in a little styrofoam box. Um, but, you know, we've had antibiotics coming for horses before on the bus and then they get lost so it didn't really want like $500 worth of IVF drugs getting lost somewhere on the bus and then mm. you know reaching their maximum temperature and be useless um so you, you kind of had to make sure that when you picked up your initial lot of medications that you had enough that were going to last you know a couple of months or for however long you needed to be on them or or whatever the scenario was at the time um and then keeping them cool so for us we camp out um, to do the mustering. We camp out in remote locations, not near the homestead or anything, just normally at a boar or a set of cattle yards. And um, we might be there for a week, we might be there for a month, and then we shift camp. So, you know, that we got to turn the generator off, um, pack up the camp and drive to the next location. And each day that we're away mustering, um, the generator is turned off as well. So all the fridges, you know, drop in temperature. So making sure that all your medications um, are going to stay at the optimum temperature and not lose their effectiveness is also mm. something, I guess, that's always weighing on your mind. Yeah. <laughs> While you're out, you know, working, you're like, oh, I hope that, you know, it's not too hot at camp today and the fridge doesn't lose, you know, too much temperature and all the drugs become worthless sort of thing. So I guess they sort of obstacles that, yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about that, yeah you have to keep in mind when you're yeah. <laughs> doing things in the bush. And you yeah. were doing it for quite a long time as well, like moving through different IVF treatments going from 2016 to early 2020 this year. Um, yeah. Did you, from the beginning, share with people, like, 
um, whether they were people who you were working with, or I know you said um, that your mum went to Darwin with you and then your mother-in-law was in at the Gold Coast. Um, so like you had parental support going on, um, but how do you manage, I guess, that need for support um, on what I know a lot of people do keep as a private journey, but um, in the isolation of rural living? Yeah, so initially, um, we, we weren't too private. Like if somebody had asked us or, or came up in conversation, we were happy to sort of tell them, you know, what we were going through. Um, but yeah, you always get somebody who'll come up to you, say you're at a campground or a rodeo and they're like, oh, you know, when are you having kids? And you just kind of got to crack a joke and brush it aside. You don't, you know, if you sort of explain the whole thing to them, they'd feel terrible. So you don't want to make them feel bad. So you didn't say, oh yeah, well we're trying, but it's not working sort of thing. Um, so initially we were a lot more private about it, but it wasn't a secret if somebody had known or they had asked and we would explain what we were doing and where we were at. Um, but yeah, I guess that early on, it's not that noticeable or yeah, people, um, you don't talk about it as, as much, I guess, at the very beginning. Um, a bit further on, you know, by then, you know, you know, more people had known that then we were, and the going IVF, um, some people would show interest and ask how it's going, which was really nice um, that people do care and, and show that interest. And, um, uh, but we didn't really, I guess, I didn't open up publicly about it, like on Instagram until the start of this year, because at that point, I think we just got to a stage where it was like, um, you know, been doing this for so long, we've got nothing to lose by sharing it. And if we can help somebody else um, by sharing our experience, then it would be worth it. And I think I also realised at that point um, that there wasn't much support out there, especially for rural women, you know, um, for people living in towns or cities, you can easily um, go and see a counsellor um, or even catch up with friends, you know, for a drink or a coffee and you know offload things off your chest but I find that rural women don't really do that so much we don't like burdening other people with our problems um so we tend not to offload so um yeah I really noticed that there was I guess a bit of a a bit of a hole there that needed filling so I thought well if I could maybe share our story on Instagram and um you know catch a couple of people's attention and um offer advice or that they saw our story and felt that they could open up about theirs and yeah that it would be a bit more worthwhile um our our family have been incredibly supportive the whole time that we've been going through the process um i think yeah my in-laws are either there to um you know take me to surgery or nurse me back to health after my surgeries my mum often comes with me um for treatments or you know, the stim cycles um when we found out we were pregnant earlier this year, there were still lots of medications I needed to be on. So my dad was on the phone trying to arrange freight to get the medications I needed from Melbourne and everything. So it's definitely been for us a family process and um, only since the start of this year, probably yeah, been sharing it more publicly with people. But I'm so glad that I have and the response has been amazing. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I, I kind of wish I had started it sooner, but yeah, I think you just get to a point where you feel 
you know, that you're ready to open up about it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, thank you as well for sharing so openly. I truly believe that it's having a big impact on people and that, like, you can be found in that way as well. Like, um, (laughs) and so when people are looking um, to try and navigate that space themselves they are able to find yourself and then um as well that you were so open to having dialogues about it too it you know wasn't a post and then disappear it's like yeah very contactable and that is very kind of you I think um I enjoyed doing it like I really enjoy getting the responses from certain people um and you know, people sharing their stories or asking questions. I, I know I feel, um, you know, it helps me, I think as well. And I feel like I can give something back and I've actually, um, I spend a lot more time now on our IVF Insta page than I do on my personal one, but, um, <laughs> I guess, cause I get, I get more, more reward from it. And so, mm. yeah, it's rewarding for me as well. And you've got this wealth of knowledge now, like, um, growing up, you wouldn't have tapped into these areas of knowledge about conception and pregnancy and birth. Um, As younger people, we're shown quite uh, a stock standard kind of vision, like what we're taught in schools and stuff. Um, So what you've kind of got now as well, and generously in your capacity to share that, um, yeah, you're opening up doorways for conversations that, uh, people need to be able to tap into that knowledge because it's just not in the knowledge we grew with. No, and it's very overwhelming. Um, you know, there's so many, you, you kind of need a dictionary or a thesaurus for IVF because all the different terms and, you know, even the medications, um, I still have no idea what half of them mean. I just sort of wing it through a lot of the time, but it is a very daunting process and it can be very overwhelming. So yeah, if you can simplify it somehow and share that, um, yeah, I think it definitely helps out. Mm, um, I'm a teacher myself, so I am really interested in, like, terms of education. Like, do you think there is stuff that is missing from the general discourse on conception, pregnancy, birth that um, needs to be included in education so that things can be shared more openly and discussed and we can have kind of a better collective knowledge? I think so, because I think, um, well, my experience with, you know, I guess like the sex education um, through school was now in hindsight quite minimal, I suppose. Um, and that really, it just talks about different contraception and, and things that your body's doing. But I don't think that it touches enough on, say, like um, ovulation, um, because prior to um, trying to fall pregnant that was something that I didn't at all fathom or understand or grasp you know it was a concept that was yeah. pretty tricky um and it's a fascinating so I, tiny window ovulation it's um, it is and sperm lives for longer than ovulation happens <laughs> exactly so it's something I think needed you know definitely needed to be discussed more in those classes um and then definitely um to touch on infertility. I don't think it's, you know, you don't need to go into great detail, but to explain to people 
um, just, I guess, your general health checks that you can get um, as like a young woman, you know, you can get your egg count checked to find out how many eggs you've got in your reserve. Um, because if you've got quite a low count, then you might um, consider freezing some eggs for later on in life in case your count um, expires or runs out. Um, or even like endometriosis. It's so, it, it's um, something that's, flies under the radar a lot people put up with a lot of the symptoms and the pain I'm very fortunate that I don't have any of the symptoms but I know a lot of women who do suffer from excruciating pain and things and you know doctors have just said to them oh it's just period pain um, and it's not you know they have severe endometriosis um, which for people who don't know is like a growth um, on the uterus and the outside of the uterus which um, can cause pain and infertility and a few other um, symptoms. So just sharing little things like that, um, that women and men, like men can go and get, you know, their sperm checked and um, the mobility and motility of their sperm checked. Um, so yeah, just some little small general health checks, I think would be great um, to be more openly discussed, you know, within your sort of sex education classes, just to, I guess, give people, um, an idea that conception isn't always so you know easy and straightforward and you know um and can be difficult because by the time you work that out sometimes it's too late mm. and that kind of encourages then an awareness of the parts of our body that we can't see extrinsic like we can't see on the outside and um having i think awareness of your sexual anatomy as well is something that is very important um and suddenly snap we're adults and <laughs> we're out in the world and um navigating this um in a way that i guess we then try to self-educate in a lot of ways which we can there's great resources out there but it would be awesome to have that kind of encouragement to better understand um those parts of ourselves and understand i guess that it is okay um to have a variation and then these are different avenues that exist for when there are variations like you said in something like sperm count or their motility yeah i think um exactly and if that means that you know um at those classes maybe a fertility specialist or even just an ivf nurse comes and talks to the class mm. about you know just some of the basics and um, you know, that would be helpful and beneficial too. And all stuff that in this digital age we can try and tap into a bit more. Um, people have been very giving in their kind of COVID online time um, yes. where they've been more willing to tap into these spaces and uh, we can access people that we've never been able to access before. Though, like you said, you were able to have an appointment via Skype a few years ago um, which is yeah. awesome to hear that that was already at play and able to happen from your home. Yeah, I think that um, it is. It's Now we're in a day and age and especially COVID, I guess, has meant that people have had to branch out and use different technologies to be able to cope with the difficulties. Um, yeah, so we were, we were able to do Skype appointments, which was terrific for us. Um, but you know, I guess that only goes so far. You can't have a mm. examination done or whatever by a camera. Um, no. 
and things like that. But definitely, definitely helps. Yes, you know, you yeah, wouldn't have to travel. test the waters before you hop on a plane. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, like, yeah, I guess for us, our initial consultation with our specialist on the Gold Coast, if we had spoken to him on Skype and then got a bad vibe, we would have been like, oh, no, I don't think we'll bother travelling down there. Maybe we'll try someone else. Um, so, yeah, I guess that definitely is beneficial. Um, another thing that you shared was, um, which I think is um, great that you're sharing about that as well, is that if your last round of IVF hadn't taken, that surrogacy was on the table. Had you already looked into surrogacy and um, how can rural women and families access this in Australia? Like from your understanding and research, what are the hurdles and important things people need to know, um, I guess just in general and as rural uh, families looking into surrogacy, um, what do they need to know in order to be able to access that that you found? Yes, yeah, so surrogacy is a huge, um, totally different kettle of fish, I suppose. It's um, like IVF, quite daunting. Um, and we did seriously look into it. I think I'm, I'm only looked into it because I like having a plan B. I like if, if this doesn't work for us, what are our options? So, you know, we, we looked at adoption, we looked at surrogacy. Um, for us, surrogacy was a more preferable option than adoption. Um, so that was my way of sort of preparing for further failure was to look into that a bit more. It's a very lengthy, detailed, expensive and difficult process. And there's so much information to sort of wrap your head around. But um, firstly, you need to be able to find someone um, who's willing to offer to be your surrogate. And in Australia, it's it's illegal to advertise or to pay for the use of a surrogate. So finding someone who will offer is is often tricky. Like some people are quite fortunate. They'll have a relative or a sister or a friend who might offer and then there's you know couples who don't have anybody so um, that can be quite challenging. There's also some Facebook support groups for surrogacy too um, and web pages which can sort of help you um, link up with potential surrogates so that's excellent um, and yeah like I say if, if you're fortunate enough friends or family can offer we we were really lucky and that um, some amazing friends of ours offered to be our surrogate um, if, if we needed to have taken that pathway. Um, they're pretty much like family to us, but, you know, we understand that it's such a huge sacrifice for somebody to give um, and there's no way that you could ever repay, repay someone for carrying a child for you. So we felt, you know, so blessed that um, we had a friend who, who had offered. Um, our biggest hurdle, I guess, looking into it was that in the Northern Territory, there's no, currently there is no legislation which allows surrogacy. So um, we're the only state in Australia that's not up to date regarding those legislations. And um, we are trying to um, allow surrogacy in the Territory. So that's something that is sort of happening. Um, so for us to go ahead with it, with surrogacy, we would have had to technically move to another state where it's allowed. Um, then uh, your doctor has, <coughs> sorry, your doctor has to sign you off as being eligible as well for surrogacy. So um, you can't just decide on your own accord. You know, if IVF is all getting a bit much or something, you might 
feel like giving up and looking for a surrogate, but you can't do that. You have to basically be deemed infertile, um, like medically infertile before you can proceed with the process. And as far as I'm aware, um, from the little bit of research I did do, um, there's many counselling sessions, um, appointments with lawyers, contracts to sign, you have to have court hearings, doctor appointments, all of that has to be done um, like with you, your partner and your surrogate and their partner. So um, you can imagine that's quite expensive because you have to cover all the costs. Your, your surrogate can't be out of pocket for anything. Um, and that's the same for any medical appointments that they might have um, prior to a transfer or after a positive test um, all through your pregnancy, like you must pay all of the medical expenses. Um, so in terms of rural families going through it, it would be very lengthy and again, a lot of travel. I think you would, um, you know, especially for us up here again, we would have had to go into state um and for us i guess we would we would have done queensland um if again like if skype or zoom are available for some of the doctor appointments or the counseling sessions that would definitely be helpful but it would be i guess depend on a case-by-case -case basis and which specialists and experts you are using um, mentally and financially i don't know of any support networks to assist rural families in particular with the process um, like I said, there's your support groups on Facebook and um, you do have to go through your counselling sessions. But, um, yeah, I don't know of anything targeting specifically rural people. Um, I, I do know a few rural families who have been through the um, surrogacy process and they actually chose to go overseas. Um, so, yeah, there are overseas options, but, again, that would add another big challenge to the whole process. Yeah. Um, then your travel again would be twice as much sort of thing. Mm. And especially, I guess, you know, now again, during COVID time, it, that would have been impossible because you couldn't go overseas to complete that process. So, you know, you, you might be waiting a couple of years before you could go ahead with that. Mm. So, but, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you're going to do what you're going to do um, to get your little miracle. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like as well you had your brain like in a fair few different directions like you were holding people talk about the mental load with like parenthood and different things and you had like an IVF and then surrogacy and the kind of preconception mental load that you were holding was large. Yeah yes as um, I guess you want to you want to find all the possible paths that you might have to take <laughs> mm. and I guess I, I particularly try and always prepare for the worst so you know if if there was something that prevented us from being able to conceive it all then yeah I needed to have that backup plan mentally um, whether or not we would have gone ahead with it whether or not it would have been successful but yeah I, it's a lot to take in a lot to research I think and trying to remember um, all the new information that you take on board and, and thank God for Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so um, the last transfer did work and you're currently pregnant quite late <laughs> in your third trimester. Um, 
how was that transition into now making birth and pregnancy care plans? Um, did it take a while before you wanted to jump straight into working out where you'd birth and how you'd birth or um, did it all kind of follow suit and come together quite easily? Um, so yeah, we're currently 37 and a half weeks, so not long to go now, so that's exciting. Um, but I think uh, it might be different in other rural areas, but for us, there's not a lot of um, options. So you kind of, it makes the job easier, I guess. Um, for us, uh, we could have only really chosen to deliver either in Catherine or Darwin hospitals because they're the closest. So Catherine for us is 300 kilometres um, from where we live. Darwin is um, about six to 700 kilometres from where we live. Mm-hmm. So I, I was born in Catherine and my family lived, like my parents live in Catherine. So for us, Catherine um, is an easy decision for us um, mm-hmm. to choose to have our baby there. And, you know, I've heard fantastic things about the maternity ward there, which is great. Um, I, I think I wasn't very organised because being a first-time mum, you sort of don't really understand what you've got to um, prepare or how to prepare. Um, so, yeah, I guess I didn't really have any idea what I was getting myself into. And I haven't really been able to access any birth classes, um, like Catherine Hospital offers mm birth classes but I would have to travel in there on a weekly basis um, and it wasn't something you know that I thought was sort of worth traveling all that distance for you know a one or two hour class and then home again every week so yeah um, I, I've been doing lots of research on the internet I've been reading lots of books that friends have given me um, I only discovered podcasts a couple of months ago so I've been listening <laughs> to lots of um, positive birthing podcasts yeah and um and which have been great because I think initially um, I was a bit terrified of labour, um, you know, because you of the movies and it's all horror and yeah. and um, a lot of my friends, you know, give it a, a negative experience sort of thing. But listening to podcasts, um, it's given me a lot more positive outlook on the whole experience. So. I downloaded quite a few of them and I listen to them in the car when I'm driving along. So it's great if I'm on my own, but I don't think any of my passengers really enjoy or appreciate listening to birthing podcasts. (laughs) I think Um, they are really healthy to spend your time listening to those stories. It's like the narrative you tell yourself, what you allow to go through your head can come out in you physically as well. So um, I think that taking all those stories in, particularly the good ones, um, is a very healthy thing to do. Yeah, I think I've benefited a lot from it. Um, I feel a lot more positive about the whole experience already by doing that. Um, And I also did recently find a free online birthing class on Zoom. So I had to work out how to use Zoom for that. um, uh, So that was last week though, only last week that I joined into that. And it was very similar to the podcast and the books that I've been reading, but it was just good to reinforce um, what I'd learned through them, I guess, and know that I guess I was on the right path. Yeah. Um, but for, um, where we I live. Think, um, for rural women, um, a lot of, again, the stuff that came out of COVID was really useful because a lot of stuff did 
come online. And then I was like, oh yeah, kind of everything everyone found useful during their isolation and their lockdowns and um, when they weren't able to get out and about very far, everything they found useful is actually useful for rural people. So I'm like, everything I saw, I'm like, could you keep that going, please? Yeah, that's really good. I'm going to save that link. Like there was a woman from Victoria, she's a midwife, and on Facebook she recorded a six, I think, episode. Um, They're all about one hour series of birthing classes because she just realised during COVID that they weren't occurring for people. And I'm like, I wish you could save them. (laughs) Because that is... um, super useful I hope she leaves them up there because yeah I'll, I'll pop them in the episode notes um or a link to her page but um yeah anything that is online um because that's just a genuine difficulty for rural people all the time like what was it like prenatally for your appointments and things did you do some digitally or did you uh, have a medical center that you could go to locally and do like a GP shared arrangement or did you all do it in one hit often um a lot of it was on the phone I suppose um but for us because I was on a strict immune protocol up until 26 weeks um through our pregnancy so I I did have to stay in touch with our fertility clinic through most of that um and sort of took their advice on the medications to help the pregnancy um progress um where we live, we live in a small little town called Timber Creek and um, there's an Aboriginal community here and a community clinic. So we're very fortunate in that having access to that clinic has been great. They have um, a GP who visits every fortnight. Um, They have nutritionists, optometrists, dentists come and visit every few months. Um, There's a travelling midwife who comes out. I think she's every, either every month or every second month. So, um, and she's great. So she'll come and do checks um, with me. And then in between her visit, visits, the other nurses at the clinic are able to, you know, take blood tests or, or do whatever um, other checks, my glucose and all the rest. Um, so that's been really great for us. And it's only 300 metres up the road for me, so I can walk up there whenever. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. been terrific. And then the the midwife who travels i've been able to just either call her or text her or whatever if i have any questions um then like my bigger appointments say you've got your um you know your 12 week scan and your 20 week scan um i would have them done in catherine but the doctor that travels out here would give me the referral for that um and during covid we were all locked down here at the community um, being an Aboriginal community, people weren't allowed to transit in and out um, of the community. So they arranged um, to fly me to Catherine. So I flew to Catherine and had um, blood tests and scans done and then was flown home again the same day. So oh, those services for me have been terrific. And yeah. uh, I think that's definitely a benefit of living in a little community here, um, mm. that I do have access to all those services. Um, I guess the women on the cattle stations um, aren't aren't so fortunate that they would still have to travel in here to the community to be able to use the clinic like they're still welcome to. Um, and the midwife, I think, does still speak to them on the phone and encourage them to come in when she's visiting the communities. But um, I, I guess, too, if I had been out in the stock camp this year, um, 
I would have needed to make, yeah, more of an effort to travel in for those appointments. But um, we've had a massive year with work and we've been actually running three stock camps. So um, my job has basically been to stay home and coordinate them from here this year. So it's, it's worked out well for me. I haven't been away um, anywhere too remote and I've been able to, you know, go to the clinic whenever I've needed to. Um, and I think it was also um, excellent in that because I was on the immune protocol till 26 weeks, um, I had to have, um, I gave myself my, I had Clexane injections, which I administered to myself every evening in, the in my tummy. I had progesterone injections in my backside, which was every day, but I couldn't bring myself to do those ones. So I just go up to the clinic and they'd give them to me, which was oh, excellent. Cool. Um, and every fortnight, I had an intralipid um, infusion. So I had to sort of be on a drip for two hours while I had the infusion. So I've been able to do all of that through the clinic and the mm. clinic have also been able to order in all of my medications and have them here um, for me to collect whenever I've needed them. So yeah, I've been really lucky um, that we've got access to our community clinic and, mm. and I guess I'm probably more fortunate than the other women on the properties who are a little bit more isolated. Um, but like I said, they, they can have access to all of those as well. It just, they have to travel in to yeah. the clinic or into Catherine, I suppose, before they can utilize those services. Sounds like a powerhouse little clinic too. Like they've got all these different things that they're able to do. They're so multifaceted, like, um, yeah, then, is definitely a need for rural upskilling and it sounds like they're able to fit in all these different little gaps. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I, I don't think I understood how good we had it, I guess. I didn't realise that we had all those services available here and, um, you know, going out there so often throughout the pregnancy and, and you know, I make friends with all the nurses um, because I have to go up there every day for my injections. Um, it's been great to understand, I guess, yeah, what we do have access to. Because, you know, if someone had asked me 12 months ago, I would have said, oh, nothing, we don't have any services sort of here. But um, in going in there and, and learning um, what we do have access to, because they have a small ultrasound machine there, so only the GP can utilise it. But he's been able to do um, scans on me when he is visiting, because that was one of the conditions um, that one of my specialists wanted me to have scans every fortnight and treat it pretty much as a high risk pregnancy. Okay. Um, Cause he said, you know, it's so rare that you've actually fallen pregnant. So um, we want you to treat it as high risk and have your scans every fortnight. So when the GP came out, he was able to do those scans for me, which is great. You know, I didn't have to travel in to Catherine um, just for the major ones. Um, so yeah, that's been, yeah, it's been really great. And, you know, I did use the nutritionist as well. Um, so yeah, having access to those services is great. And I think, um, you know, I tell more people about them now too, cause I know that they're available and I guess if you're utilizing them, then they'll keep coming back. Yeah. And stuff, um, like information about where to find things can often be so spread out that sharing is, um, really important to let people know where to find it and, what different things there are in the community. I think I've found out more through word of mouth than I've ever been able to 
source online. Like, you know, we've got a cheeky OB hiding in our community in our GB, GP clinic. And so um, I just found out about them through word of mouth. There's nowhere to Google that information. It's just passed on. Um, which I guess is one of those big gifts of rural communities is they're full of people who talk to each other. Um, we're not closed off. We're very open door policy, I find. Um, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're right. And I think, um, yeah, you do, you talk about it more. Um, we were very fortunate last week we had an obstetrician come out to the community and it's the first time that they've actually trialed bringing an obstetrician out mm -hmm. um so they the midwife brought her out and took her to a couple of the other communities around here and i have a couple of friends who are um, pregnant and living on the cattle stations um nearby so you know i messaged them straight away i said oh there's an obstetrician coming so you you know <laughs> you should take advantage of that and make sure you see them and um so i think it was sort of a trial but um, I'm sure that it was popular and hopefully it's a service that will continue. Mm, yeah, the more that can be offered, the better for sure. Um, yeah. So what kind of, from your vast experience, what kind of hot takes, takeaways, advice do you have for rural women as they kind of head out on their preconception, conception, uh, pregnancy journeys? Um, your story is just so fantastic and I'm so appreciative that you've shared in such great detail. You've shared so generously. Um, but yeah, if, if we could kind of sum it up, what is there a message or a thing that you would really like other rural women to know as they go on their journey? Um, well, in regards to, um, I guess, just that rural birthing women i don't think i'm really qualified to answer that one yet as i haven't gone through it just yet but um i think being a woman from the bush we we expect ourselves to always take the rougher road um i don't know for some reason i feel like we like to prove how tough we are and and go for options with little or, or no pain management on to deliver naturally um but i think the thing to remember is that you know we we want our birth to be a positive experience. So whichever method helps to achieve that is going to be the best, you know, option. Um, whether it be hypnobirthing or birthing in a pool or having your epidural C-section or naturally, whatever you feel is going to provide the most positive experience for you. Um, not to be, I guess, um, persuaded by what you think other people think is the right thing to do. Um, but also to remember to be flexible um, because, you know, things don't always go to plan. Same with IVF. Um, so if you have to deviate from the original plan, be prepared because then you're less likely to be disappointed, I guess. Um, and in terms of the, you know, IVF um, tips, I guess, I don't know, like, I think, um, we try, I don't know if we, I don't know if we wait too long before we try and get tested, but I definitely encourage rural women, you know, before um, even they try to conceive to, to have all your, you know, checks, like I was saying that we need to discuss more with, you know, in, within sex education or whatever to um, have your egg count checked or have your ovaries checked. Um, I guess just having like an overall reproductive check 
will, could save you, you know, years in the long run. You know, you might be yeah. trying for a baby um, like we were and, and thinking everything's fine. Um, and often it's not. So I guess don't, don't skip on those checks before you start trying to, you know, um, grow your family and um, yeah, be, I guess in, in a way be flexible again, because like I said, everything changes or it doesn't go to plan. So um, yeah, I guess you've got to be prepared for, for plan B. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, for sharing so generously and all the best for your birth. Um, very exciting. You. you know, it could be next week. It could be a couple of weeks. Um, births like that. <laughs> it's on its yes, own timeline. Right. We're a bit, we're a bit concerned. Um, my husband's away mustering at the moment. Um, and he's like right on the Western Australian border and wow. not real sure he's going to make it home in time. If he gets the call that I'm going into labor, he may not make it at all. But um, I guess that's another one of the challenge of being a rural woman is so it could be interesting, but we'll see how we go. And like I said, I've got supportive family, so um, it'll be fine. And you, like I said, you've got to be flexible, but um, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah I really appreciate being able to share our story um, and hopefully it helps other people thank you again to Rainey we're so grateful for everything she shared in today's interview and wish her all the best with her upcoming birth if you would like to share your rural birth story as a practitioner or as a rural birthing woman, please get in touch on Instagram at rural underscore births or via email ruralbirths at gmail.com. And once again, thank you for listening.